Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's, will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. It's always an interesting moment when you ask someone to read the text and they have to say sinful and adulterous generation. Maybe it's not interesting for you. It's interesting for me as the one who asked them to do it. I was looking at this text over the last couple of months and weeks and it's not really a good benediction text, you know? Like, there are so many beautiful promises from Christ when he says, gaze at the birds and the flowers and remember that your heavenly father loves you and... Luke chapter 12, he says, it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Matthew, says, come to me, all you who are weak, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I think those are good benediction promises, and yet, here's Jesus teaching plainly about what he needed to do to reconcile us, and what we do in response to his love Here, just the middle part again. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Jesus calls us Notice the beauty of the word anyone in there. It is God's love is that big and accessible and available. 
And yet in trusting him and receiving the gospel, in following him, it will involve suffering. Your cross is what's yours to do in the kingdom and what's yours to do of the kingdom. Each of you have neighbors that other people don't have. And you are called by God to speak words of light and life to them, not words of death. Each of you will be called to be generous towards something that others in the room will not be called to, and you'll do so because you're a follower of Christ. I have uh, six siblings, and two of them are living in such a way that, well, it troubles me. I'll just say that. And uh, when we talk, they want me to support things that I think are very destructive, and I can't do it. And it stings, because I love them. How do I love them and be for them without affirming some of the decisions that they're making? It'd be fascinating if they started listening to my sermons after this week. Any of them, right? Was it me? You said six. Two of us. Anyway. And it stings. And one of the reasons it stings is because I know something about the gospel of Jesus and the commands of God. And they're harming themselves and their children, frankly. I think that's part of my taking up my cross, to learn, not that I know how to do this well, but to learn to love them without saying, oh, it's fine. I'm so glad you're happy. Yet there's a beauty even in the harshness of this, if anyone. And yet the reality that we live in is few follow In there is a question from Jesus. Who do you say that I am? And if Jesus is who he says he is, if God exists, if the New Testament is authoritative and true, then that is the most profound question available to us as human beings. Who do we say that he is? And Jesus, Peter's answer, just despite the fact that Peter and Jesus then get into a very heated discussion after his profession, don't miss the beauty of his profession that Jesus is the Christ. We've been looking at the book of Mark and and Jesus pointing out to us through miracles and teaching that our natural sense is that we're alienated from God. And Jesus came to reconcile us to him. Our natural sense is that we're autonomous, that we can call our own shots, that we know what's best for us. And Jesus, especially through his healings of blind and deaf people, is showing us That is not real life. And it's a lie that we're autonomous. We become our full selves in submission and surrender to him. Now we're going to look as we approach Resurrection Sunday and during the time of Lent, the attributes of a follower of Christ. And what Jesus is saying here is that a follower of him is one whose life is surrendered to him. Jesus calls us from death by death. The command is to follow even if it includes death, even while promising life. You know, there, I've referenced this a couple times recently. There are a couple words for life in Greek. One is bios, right? It means your eyes are opening, closing, your heart's beating, synapses are firing, at least some of them, depending on coffee. You can move and talk. And then there's another word, zoe. And zoe is what we know instinctively when someone said, how's your life? They don't mean are your fingernails growing. They mean, are you content? How's this matching up with the life that you thought you would live or thought you would have? 
You have peace in your heart. The followers of Jesus, especially in the, in the, the time that the first hearers would have heard, so this is Peter preaching, Mark wrote it down, and it's beginning to be distributed in probably the 60s, a couple of decades after Christ. They would have understood the cross probably better than us. We see in the cross a hope and the reconciliation of humans to God by the work of Christ. What they would have seen was death. There were people on crosses all over the Roman Empire for those that were not willing to say Caesar is Lord. And so they would have seen this complicated description of real life by Jesus as surrendering, perhaps even having a shorter bios that we might experience Zoe, real life. And there's something in this that we need to understand about the Bible, and that is that every command of God is preceded by a promise that he keeps regardless. Every command. And therefore, every command is not a command about how to make him happy. That's what we naturally think about religion is, okay, I need to get a little religion. I need to do a couple of things that will make God happy with us. And the Bible presents a very different picture than that. It presents a picture where God pursues us in love. He describes a covenant to us. He keeps that covenant. Then he guides us into real life. But that does involve death to self. Bishop Ambrose described it as if you're outside of your body and you see someone beating your body and you don't mind. And I'm not positive I love that, partly because it involves a beating. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, I don't know how to say it. How do I say it? That was fine. But a lot of people disagreed. Described that when people enter a prison, the only way to survive mentally and emotionally is if you die to self internally and the guards can tell that you don't care what they're going to do. They're nervous and they avoid you. I'm going to say that, that death to self is when mission takes precedent over comfort. Not always. You need comfort. You need to sleep. You have work. You need to keep the electricity on. But at times, there will be opportunities, and there will be an opportunity this week where you're going to be tired, and there's going to be an opportunity to speak life into something. Or there's going to be an opportunity to be generous, and you could either save that money or spend it on some diversion or be generous with it. And diversion's good, and you should buy some of the things that you want. And... We're called to be generous. And when mission takes precedence over those things, I think that's death to self. Last night we celebrated and grieved uh, one of our elders who died a number of weeks ago, Dave Simpson. And um, I don't know, do you know what kind of cars Dave drove? Drove a Subaru later in life. But in the 60s, when he got out of service, World War II, he was an intelligence officer. Uh, for a general that sometimes didn't prepare for meetings. Dave sometimes had to whisper about uh, troop movements. I think we can talk about that now. Cold War's over, right? Yeah. When he got out, Dave's about six foot four, apparently had an awkward crew cut. I didn't know that. John Carmen of Carmen Funeral Homes, one of Dave's students, and said you could easily pick out Dave in his, um, ah, excuse me. Well, that would have been bad. All into the communion table podium fell over. You could easily pick out Dave, that's a, a model of it, a 61, 62 Sunbeam, light blue convertible, two-seater, six foot four, awkwardly tall crew cut. That's a cool convertible. Pretty soon after that, they started making them longer, you know? Remember when cars were just, looked like boats? Then Dave became a follower of Christ, and he got rid of that car. 
and that's what he got instead. By your laughter, I can tell that you can tell one of those cars is very cool. <laughs> and one of those cars is not. But in the station wagon, and station wagons are coming back around. I mean, they handle really well. Car guys like station wagons because they kind of handle like, but back then, they did not. But Dave traded in his convertible for that because he worked at a boarding school. And at that boarding school, students that were intrigued by Jesus' promises and commands went to a ministry called Focus. And Dave could get more students to focus in a station wagon. If you have a convertible, I'm not saying get rid of it. Times are different. Cars are different. Your mission's different than Dave. I am saying that's a beautiful story. Jesus said these things plainly. Sometimes as I listen to Christians, some of them think that the atonement is not a big deal, that Jesus had to die to reconcile us to God. It troubles me. And then other times I see people that want to take Jesus' command that we take up our cross and follow him, and somehow they hear a triumphal note to it. There is a triumph, and there will be a triumph, and it is Jesus's. Christians, I think, hear him say this plainly, and we understand the incredible power of the atonement. Sometimes on the far left, I think that progressives think that the atonement, like it kind of matters, but probably if we educate everyone, that would fix the world. And then on the right side, there are a number of conservatives that say, it's, it's just too far gone. We trust Jesus, and it's all that matters, and let's hold on to what we have. Jesus said these things plainly that we might receive new life through his death. And what that produces in us is not a cynicism about the atonement, that perhaps it doesn't matter that much. And it doesn't produce a triumphalism in us. It produces humility. We're so thankful that he would die for us. And I know the reality, which is that we don't want a cross. And yet the reality of this text is that there are but two options to follow Jesus or not, to accept Zoe, life, knowing that our bios might involve suffering, actually will involve suffering. The Bible's quite clear about that. Jesus calls us from death by his death into life. I hope that's part of the reason you're here this morning. You're wondering, and maybe it's a very full-hearted wondering or confidence, maybe just by a shred, is life actually available to me? Is there a life where I can receive what Paul describes to the Philippians, contentment in all circumstances? Is that actually possible? Can I have peace in my heart in the midst of a chaotic and crazy and dangerous world? I hope that's why you're here. And I hope that whether it's a shred of a belief or a full belief, the Holy Spirit is right now ministering to you that his promises are good. His word is sure. He is steadfast. And this life is available to you, even with your circumstances, even with where you're coming from, even with the temptations that assault you, even with your fears. That offer comes through death and resurrection. According to the scriptures, a more profound question than who are you is who are you in Christ? Because a follower of Christ is entirely surrendered to him and in that becomes their true self. 
A friend texted me yesterday and he was um, venting a little bit, it's not always a godly activity, about his wife. And I know him very well. I know his wife very well. And I, it's no one in the congregation. I'm not, I, don't, I don't do that. I don't, I promise. Um, and I, I said, well, what's your plan? I know him well enough. I know his wife well enough. This could easily be fixed through some communication. And uh, I put my phone down. We had uh, things to do yesterday. And I picked it back up right before I went to bed. And he said, I don't have a plan. And so instead of moving towards his wife, which Christ would command him to do, instead of being surrendered to Christ in that moment, he was surrendered to resentment. I mean, how broken are we? And I do this. I mean, I, I do this. Like I'm in a bad mood and my solution to my bad mood is let's make it worse. Let's just sit on it for a couple of days. That could be awesome. That was my friend's solution. We surrender to resentment instead of to Christ and we miss moving back towards our good friend or our spouse. I see this with adult parents of children and this is a tough one but we surrender to our pride rather than learning to listen to our adult children and become friends with them. See, this with parents of little kids. We want to surrender to the incredible frustration of the amount of times we have to repeat ourselves instead of perhaps noticing in the repetition something about the character of God who has never been impatient with us. This teaching that, that Jesus taught first to his disciples and then to the crowd is, is echoed later in the New Testament, a few decades after Jesus said it, but a few, uh, at least one decade before Mark wrote it down, the Apostle Paul described it this way. And note, among other things, the internal consistency of the Bible. Peter and Paul, who didn't get along, heard the same offer from Jesus, and they understood that it involved death to self in order to receive his new life. Paul described it this way to a group of churches. We know it as the book of Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved himself and gave himself for me. You see me counting? I don't know how you know, visible my fingers are. I recently had to get reading glasses. It's tough. Vision, right? Five. Five offers of life, not bios, zoe. Real life. Where we receive the peace and joy and righteousness that is the kingdom that Jesus purchased for us and offers that we receive by faith. And it's in a world of death. And this is what many don't get about Christianity, and frankly, many don't like about Christianity, and it's part of the reason that they're either resistant or wholeheartedly against it. How broken is the world? And again, and as far as I can tell, a number of progressives are like, and I mean that religiously, they're like, well, let's see, it's kind of broken, you know. And then there are a number of conservatives that are like, it's broken beyond repair. There's no redemption available leads to what, what I would call an evangelical Gnosticism. The Bible says that the world is profoundly broken, and yet resurrection power is available to it and to us, offered in the life of Jesus. It's available to anyone, if anyone, 
but the offer is to die. Radically surrender to him. Notions of autonomy, our misperceptions of him, and our choices. There's a lovely book called The Screwtape Letters, where Uncle Screwtape writes to his nephew Wormwood, who's in charge of tempting, in charge of tempting a man. I think only a Briton could have written this book because it's funny to read a demon talking to another demon. And he writes this about the offer of self, that, that we must die to self. He says, when he, God, talks of their losing their selves, he means only abandoning the clamor of self-will. self-will. Once they have done that, he really gives them back all their personality and boasts, I'm afraid sincerely, that when they are wholly his, they will be more themselves than ever. Jesus' teaching to first the disciples and then the crowd is, is clear that in a world of death there is life, but it is only through receiving his pursuing love by faith and then surrendering to him. Everything. That we might learn to actually love him and to neighbor. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, would you draw near to us as we surrender in light of your pursuing love? And would you show us areas that are not surrendered to you? Jesus, would you help us by faith hear your voice and see your face and be so humbled by your love that we easily surrender everything to you? Holy Spirit, would you guide us away from temptation? and into the real life you called us into and that you purchased for us. Amen.